0: Welcome to Out of the Question, a podcast that looks behind some common questions and uncovers the question behind the question, while providing real solutions for a biblical world and life view. Your co-hosts are Pastor Charles Roberts and Andrea Schwartz, a teacher and mentor. Hello and welcome to another Out of the Question podcast. Today is August 17th, 2018. This is Pastor Charles Roberts. And I am joined by my co-host, Andrea Schwartz. Hello, Andrea.
1: How are you, Charles?
0: I'm wondering, what is our question today?
1: Can you make it sound like I just throw it upon you? We actually do talk about it a little bit. Not too much, but a little bit. But today's question is, will my consistent adherence to God's law word marginalize me in society?
0: That is a very good question, but I suspect there's more to it than that. So what, uh, what would be behind that question, do you think?
1: Well, I think the real question behind that question is, what is the God-honoring way to live in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation?
0: Those words for people who study Holy Scripture, a wicked and perverse generation, you didn't just make those up. They come from the Gospels. Of course, the earliest Christians, including Jesus and the Apostles, Lived in a generation that was wicked and perverse, not simply because of where he lived, the, the control of pagan Rome and its statist empire, but also the culture of the Jews of the day was also perverse and wicked. What sort of th- thoughts do you have about that, Andrea? Are we in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation?
1: Well, I would say most definitely we are in the midst of a wicked and perverse generation. Depending on where you live, it manifests itself more so than in other places. But the question we have to ask ourselves is this, is this the most wicked and perverse generation ever? Wouldn't the early church have said, it's hard to imagine it getting more wicked or more perverse. It really depends on how we're going to define things. And also whether or not we really believe that the Holy Spirit changing the hearts of men actually produces more than just better individuals does it have any effect on society and has it since the 2000 plus years of the beginnings of the christian church what we would call the new testament church has, has there been progress or has things stagnated where are we
0: well i think if we go back to the very beginning of god's call to abraham which is you know the uh, the continuation of the dominion mandate that god gave adam and eve Originally, he called him to leave the family of his father and go to this new land. It was not a land uninhabited; it was inhabited by others with very different values. And of course, the unfolding of older Testament history is what's given to us in the historical books of First and Second Kings and Chronicles, and the you know movement of the children of Israel and the Pentateuch. And what we see there is that the adherence of those folks as the best of their ability, and they failed miserably on many occasions to God's law word, certainly did marginalize them and set them apart from the people among whom they went to live. And sometimes that created severe friction. But the goal always was for God's people to have that godly dominion and displace and overcome, primarily by spiritual means, the darkness of those cultures in which they Went to live. And I think that we need to be very clear that just about any generation is a wicked and perverse generation until the church completely prevails before the final return of Christ. However, I think we can talk about whether any particular generation or context is more or less perverse and wicked. I know that you have recently returned from San Francisco, a city that has a reputation for profound wickedness. It's probably had that reputation for a long time, but I think the visibility of wickedness in that place is far worse today than, say, it was in the year 1930.
1: And that has more to do with not the success of wickedness or the utter advantage that perversity has. It has more to do with, I think, the people of God backing off From godly positions. So first and foremost, you'd have to know what God's law said. You'd have to be willing to be ridiculed or ostracized for upholding it, and really to have this view that says, is it better for us to separate and set up our own communities, or is it better for us to go in and actively try to change those who are in the midst of A wicked and perverse generation? Or do we sort of sit on the fence and say, live our holy life when we're the people of God, but just try to get along without being noticed when we're with those who don't believe?
0: Well, the example that we have from the earliest followers of Jesus is that they certainly did not try to marginalize themselves or go off and some desert monastic scenario that developed much later. They flourished and attempted to spread the message of Jesus and the light of God's law word in the, places in the places in which they lived. And we know from the New Testament itself, from the book of Acts in particular, that the Apostle Paul had this very same mission, that he would take this message to the Gentiles where they lived, even to the point, in some cases, of sitting down to eat with them at foods that he probably would not have normally eaten under some circumstances, because he wanted to do this right where they were. He didn't go off and establish some monastery somewhere, and if somebody happened to come to them and knock on the door, like, you know, some ancient Shaolin temple thing where the the, the 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 abbot keeps refusing you and you have to keep... But no, no, it was nothing like that. Paul went among the people where they were in Acts 20. He reminds the elders from Ephesus that he went among them from house to house, teaching and proclaiming these things. So, in one sense, yes, our adherence to the law standard of God as opposed to the law standard of pagan culture and the state will marginalize us, but that is simply a temporary thing uh, until the triumph of God's law marginalizes and completely defeats the other.
1: Right, and you'd have to posit victory. Obviously, if you look at the early church and if you ever have spent some time reading Fox's Book of Martyrs, you will realize that those people who took a stand, Paul being among them, Peter being among them, and then subsequent Christians, sometimes the enmity of those who hate God and at war with God was manifested in the physical killing of believers. And so I think when you have a comfortable Christianity, and when I put comfortable Christianity, sometimes it's just not a very faithful, covenantal Christianity, you think it's just as important to make sure that people don't laugh at you, that you couldn't possibly lose your job, or maybe you'd be arrested, or God forbid, you could lose your life. I think sometimes when you have had a comfortable situation, you think that security is is more important than Christian liberty.
0: And one of the the main, perhaps the main forum or stage on which the efforts to extend the message of God's word and the triumph of his law word and the outpost from which this is to radiate out into the wider culture is the family. And it is so, therefore, very important that Christians have an understanding of what constitutes a godly family. You know, we have talked about some aspects of this in many of our other podcasts, but insofar as there is compromise or a failure to understand God's standard for family living, child rearing, education, and the communication of the biblical worldview, this is where the breakdown begins and where the retreat starts. And until that part is changed we're always going to find ourselves at somewhat of a disadvantage. And so we have seen this right through the two or three generations here in these United States where ostensibly Christian people have, as I think, I don't know if it was Dr. Rastuni or Gary North or someone referred to it as tithing their children to the state, you know, by giving them over to the government school systems to educate them, to fill their heads with a statist, secular, humanistic worldview about every aspect of life and then thinking that setting them in a church situation or a Bible reading situation at home for 15 or 20 minutes or more is somehow going to overcome that when we've seen the results in the past 50 years or so. Simply that that approach won't work.
1: And let me add that you can be very faithful, whether it's having your children attend a solid Christian school for most of their younger years, or even homeschooling them yourself, you can't deny the fact that the greater culture, and with the greater culture, I would include institutions like institutions of higher education, the workplace, the media And the media now has broadened to not just be television and radio, but it includes social media, the prevalence of sporting events, and sporting events having a national characteristic that more people are concerned with how their particular country or team does in this particular event than they are in terms of places in the world where Christians are being persecuted. So there's no guarantee how children will turn out just because the parents are faithful. Now, that may sound like, well, then why bother if it's going to be just the same? Well, our responsibility before God is to be faithful. And so if we faithfully administer and discharge our duties under God, God is the one that will bring about the increase. God is the one who will bring the success of what we do. And my experience, even with children who have been raised in the faith and now at a point in their life where they deviate from it, if the parents have faithfully instilled in them the importance of God's law, the importance of the two great commandments to love God with your whole heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself, they are going to be better prepared whether or not they're consciously trying to do it to bring that to bear in their lives. So they're less likely to become strippers. They're less likely to become gun runners. They're less likely to outwardly say, we should have the right to kill children in the womb. That doesn't mean that they bow the knee to Jesus Christ, which ultimately they will have to do, but it does say that we've instilled a training Think of the poor souls, and I really mean this, the poor souls who never had godly influence in their life at all, don't know about a Ten Commandments, don't know that killing a baby in the womb is murder and how God addresses the fact of murder and how seriously. So the benefit to the children of those people who say, we want a distinctively Christian education for our children, they will not be held accountable for withholding the truth. And part and parcel of a good Christian education is a proper view of history and a proper understanding of all the events that have happened in the world with the template of God's word to evaluate them.
0: And when we consider the, the displacement of paganism and what we would think of today as Western Europe, which would eventually become the cradle of what was called Christendom, at least as far as the Western Latin-speaking Christian church, as opposed to the Greek and Aramaic and uh, Syriac-speaking churches of the East. We see the work that went into that was a serious motive for spreading this message and, in fact, taking dominion in the name of Christ and taking seriously the dominion mandate, but the... um, The great command of Jesus to bring the nations into his discipleship. And we find missionaries going into all kinds of horrifically difficult places where the darkest types of paganism, human sacrifice practiced, uh, worshiping of objects and trees and animals and people just living in the kind of darkness that it's difficult for us to imagine. And yet these unnamed missionaries in many cases went into places that we think of today as modern day Germany or France or England or Scotland to carry these messages forward. And it changed the course of human history as God intended it to do. I think that we don't really have a good sense of just how evil and dark the pagan world was. And there have been some efforts to recover this through research and scholarship, maybe not necessarily motivated by Christian desires uh, to talk about this, but the information becomes very helpful nonetheless. The interview we did a few weeks ago with my fellow pastor, Andrew Dion, on the subject of the Revoice Conference and the rising influence of the homosexual movement in some evangelical churches, he, in that interview, made reference to a book that was a study of bisexuality in the ancient world. And I got a copy of that book. It was written by a woman who was a scholarly writer, she teaches in Rome, I believe she's Italian, she had started the research to talk about the treatment of women in the ancient world, and she said she began to realize as she did this work that she really could not address that subject until she dealt with the issue of the ensconced cultural habit and practice of male homosexuality. So I've started reading this book, and I want to tell you, it is just harrowing. It is just mind-boggling to read just how ordinary and normal this practice was to where, and it's not exactly like we think of it today, but it's just hard to conceptualize how this was the order of the day where an older man would take on a younger man as his, so, you know, understudy the teaching to be a man, but that involved homosexual activity. But then later, that would stop, and the younger man would then be expected to go get a wife and start a family. This is just unimaginable. to This is the sort of culture that our ancient Christian ancestors faced and that marginalized them because, of course, the teaching of God's law is that this sort of thing is an absolute abomination. But yet they found a way, a positive way, to address that. And, you know, I think there's something among those whom God has chosen to be citizens of his kingdom and of his covenant family, to where when the light of this truth is presented, however failingly or faultingly, and as you mentioned, that may be in the context of a family situation where maybe the kids don't turn out perfect, but nevertheless, we do the best we can in in presenting that message. I, I think that when this truth is presented as a light in a dark place, people come. They understand in some dim way that what they are hearing is a message of hope and a message of life that has escaped them to that point. And I think this has been the reason, apart from God's providence, which, of course, I don't mean to marginalize, why this message resonated and just spread like wildfire through the remnants of the old Roman Empire.
1: When we think about marginalization, that's one of those terms that people like, oh, I don't want to be marginalized, because, again, that's the acceptance of man. Well, if you're not marginalized, in other words, along the margins, along the boundaries of a wicked and perverse generation, the opposite of that is that you'd be accepted. Well, we know that the message of the gospel is offensive to sinners. And we know that apart from God's grace, man will continually be at war with God. So we have to get comfortable with being marginalized if the context is, the starting point is, we are going to be at war with God at all costs. Because people mistakenly think that the enmity against God is sort of accidental. You have good people who do some bad things, but they're not fighting God. The scripture tells us differently. The scripture tells us that people know they're at war with God, the very atoms and cells of their being tell them right and wrong and they're busy suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. So there's nothing accidental about this. So the better question is, would you rather be marginalized by society or by the triune God?
0: That is an excellent question and uh, sooner or later, uh, by God's grace, people learn that they'd much rather be marginalized by society. I think it's too interesting also that we consider the example of the followers of Islam and the Muslims who live in our current society. Now, I suppose if you go to some Middle Eastern country where there are both Christians and Muslims, especially those less modernized cities, well, say, for example, the women dress the same, you know, the distinctive headdress of the Muslim woman, the hijab, actually they got that from the christian women of uh, of the time of the prophet muhammad that's the way they dressed if you've been to uh, a greek orthodox church many of the ladies wear a similar type of outfit my point is is that i don't know about where you live but you know there aren't a large number of muslims here in the upcountry of south carolina but there are some and the women don't mind going out in public dressed that way even in a in a culture where they're not looked upon with any favor But they certainly don't mind being marginalized, quote-unquote, in that sense. They have no hesitation about it whatsoever. And I just wonder if Christians had a distinctive attire that marked them out as very clearly identifying with this particular religion. If we were in a culture that was minority, would our women, would our men be willing to dress this way to immediately, quote-unquote, again, marginalize them?
1: people would argue we already are a minority if you're looking at those who faithfully look to God's word as the instruction manual on how we should live and how we should think in terms of all aspects and subjects of life but it will only be when people have a desire to please God to obey God and that that is the only way to blessing think of how many times we We talk about God bless this person, God bless that person. I hope we mean, we should mean, God bless their obedience to your word. And where they are not obedient, withhold your blessing so that they might be drawn to your obedience and to obedience to your word. Um, Sometimes we just want this generic blessing as if the person who is at war with God has any right or expectation of blessing.
0: Well, and obviously they don't. They may think that they do. And I think part of the reason for any confusion on that matter is the mixed message, if not an outright false one, that come from the popular evangelical churches that dot the land and that are all over the media. I hope people who listen to us on these podcasts regularly, maybe if they are more or less in tune with our understanding of what Scripture teaches and the importance of God's law word and the that the word of God is a total word. Maybe they're not aware that their friends who go to the typical evangelical church, they don't ever hear anything like this. Or if they do, it's usually around some election cycle on some issue like abortion or something like that. And I would encourage our listeners to do so if they are not familiar with it. Turn on your local television station. If, if you've got cable, you can find these channels that have popular churches around the country, if not in their own communities, and just give it a couple of weeks of listening and see the sorts of things that are being taught and talked about in churches. They never talk about these things. You know, it's all about feeling better about yourself, how to solve marriage problems, and usually that's not from a biblical standpoint. It's shot through with all kinds of modern psychological nonsense. There was a story in our paper, our local paper here uh, today about a church, uh, I I guess I'll call it a megachurch, In Nashville, Tennessee, where the church and the pastor had gotten the ire of the people for the ethical treatment of animals. Now, you would wonder, what what would get a church in trouble with PETA? Well, this church had been renting zoo animals they would bring in caged lions and put them on the stage, the platform where the the pastor would preach some sermon referring to this animal or I don't know, there's something like that. And they had a picture of the pastor standing next to this cage with a lion in it. And uh, he had, you know, the little microphone thing that comes around the ear to the mouth and he was wearing some sort of a baseball Jersey. It's just amazing. The thing that, that, that passes for church these days. So it's no wonder that people, they don't hear anything that's really going to, marginalize them in any meaningful sense, so they don't really have to worry about it.
1: And let's add that what is currently in the news when we're recording this is the revelation and allegations, and in some cases, substantiation, that certain dioceses in portions of the U.S., Catholic diocese, revelations about sexual abuse. And the media is all over this, And you have to ask yourself the question, why are they all over this? Is it because they have abhorrence to fornication and adultery and homosexuality and pedophilia? No, they don't. As a matter of fact, Hollywood promotes a lot of that within the context of we're going to weed out the hypocrisy of church groups that say you shouldn't do these things, but then they do them anyway. So... I've known a lot of Christians who are dismayed. What are we going to do? The church is getting such a bad rap. Well, we have to identify the fact that the mark of a faithful church is a church that knows, teaches, and applies God's word. And so all you have to do, whether it's a Catholic church or it's the churches you were just referencing, how faithful are they to the word of God? Do their congregants even know the word of God so that they might be able to challenge something the pastor says. I mean, how many pastors, and you're a pastor and you might find this a little awkward that I'm saying this, how many pastors are willing to end their sermons and then say, does anybody have any questions or comments? <laughs> because that would be the time to clarify, what did you mean by this? Well, modern day, there's really only one pastor that I know of, and he happens to be Calcedon's founder, R.J. Rush Dooney who was comfortable enough to end every sermon or lecture he gave that way. Now, some people say, well, I don't know all the answers to everything. Well, then the correct answer would be, I don't know the answer to that. I'll have to look it up. My point is that the criticisms of the media aren't truly criticisms of faithful Christianity. It's their criticisms of deviations, but they're not being consistent. They don't have the same outrage over Hollywood producers or public school teachers or law enforcement or the sexual deviations in the military. No, no, they're going after the Roman Catholic Church specifically because then you can take a shot at religion and ultimately take a shot at the Bible. I'm not defending any behavior in any sphere That's contrary to God's word. I'm saying the Christian has to understand instead of getting defensive and saying, well, I don't want to act like I agree with it. We really do need to be saying, well, the scripture clearly says this, and this is how they were deviating from scripture, rather than defending institutions that don't really care about orthodox applications of God's law.
0: I don't know who originated this statement at the time that I, I think I heard it many, many decades ago. At the time that it was a popular question to be asked, no one ever thought that it would ever have a serious application. And it was something like this. If being a Christian was suddenly against the law, would there be enough evidence to convict you? And that's another way of saying, is there anything that would marginalize you from the pagan world in which we live? Uh, one reason I brought up the example of uh, the, the sexual practices and the decadence of the ancient world is that that was one thing in particular that did marginalize the Christians. And at the end of our program, I will make a recommendation for a particular reference. The subtitle of this book is The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. And it was nothing short of remarkable how the willingness of Christians to be marginalized on that particular issue, and may I say, by the way, parenthetically, that relates to the foundational issue I mentioned earlier, which is the family. It was their willingness to make the stand in a culture where they were looked upon as oddballs, if not insane, in this area that led eventually to that transformation. You know, I, um, I was doing a, a reading of early Christianity in these United States and especially in the temperance movement, the swearing off of alcohol and the image that many people have of the the temperance lady. And this was very popular among women in the late 19th and early 20th century. You know, Carrie Nation, the lady with the, the really Victorian looking dress with a Bible in one hand and a hatchet in the other who attacked bars and saloons, trying to make sure that no man ever enjoyed himself by having a good drink. What I never realized until I started doing some reading and research about it is that one of the reasons that the temperance movement had gained such popularity and support among the women, especially here on the East Coast, where it was most popular and had the most support in the churches, was because almost every saloon had within it, if not next door to it, a brothel, a house of prostitution. And the women were sick and tired of their husbands contracting venereal diseases and well, apart from the fact of committing adultery. So they were willing to make a stand to look, be looked upon as oddballs to make that connection. But it's interesting that our culture somehow failed to add that part of why temperance, the abstaining from alcohol in that context was so popular.
1: Yeah, I didn't actually know that. I just learned something new myself here. Yes. And that goes back to why it's important to know history and why it's important to have a biblical philosophy of history. Um, There are plenty of history books out. There are plenty of ways to view things. And I dare say you could take any event that everybody's familiar with and read various histories, and you'll see that the starting point of the author will have a lot to do with what gets reported and the conclusions that are drawn. Somehow other people think, for example, that textbooks are this neutral thing, Well, textbooks are less preferable than original source material because textbooks are things that people have read, digested, chewed up, and give you a smattering of, but sometimes their interpretation of events is not going to be the same as someone else's interpretation of events because there'll be different starting points. So if you're going to look at history and evaluate events of the past, the far past and the more recent past, you have to have a starting point. You have to have a template with which to view it. And if Christians do not view it from a biblical perspective, then they're very easily marginalized away from a biblical position because they accept somebody's View of history without challenging it, saying, for example, what you just brought up, it wasn't that women were averse to their men having a drink, it was that they were averse to society encouraging adultery and then, of course, prostitution, which is not favorable towards women, no matter what anybody says. And of course, then it brought health issues. So these things are all tied in together, but you better understand history from the correct point of view, if you're going to come up with the correct conclusion.
0: And what we see all too often is that, if I can continue to bang the drum on this issue of the churches, is the churches in our time and for many years have failed to understand what you just said about the the starting point of understanding history because they don't see Holy Scripture and the message of God's law word as a total word. They see it simply as, something that will get you in God's good favor so you won't die and go to hell or so you can live a successful life or so you'll be nicer to people. And there's nothing wrong with being successful and being nice to people. But the perspective that Jesus has on history is that you are to go and make the nations my disciples and teach them all things that I have commanded you. That is a mandate for future history. Unfortunately, that somehow has been ignored by the church either because Christians individually don't want to see themselves as marginal. And let's recognize, too, I think there was something you said at the very beginning of our podcast that made me think about this in terms of where any any person happens to live at a particular moment, how problematic it may be for them to be considered marginal because of their commitment to God's law word. Well, the thing is, with the reach of television and the entertainment industry and the Internet, Even though you might live in some small burg somewhere in the middle of nowhere, that pagan civilization, that pagan culture is brought right into your home. And so there's really no escaping it from that standpoint. You can be sitting in your living room watching a TV show and just be made to feel marginalized simply because of the discussions going on among the talking heads on the news or whatever the sitcom is where some aspect of evil or Pagan sexuality is just looked upon as so frivolous and happy-go-lucky, and you're, you're sitting there thinking, well, why do I think this is such a bad thing?
1: Exactly. I know one of the simpler things that used to be commonplace, at least from my understanding, was people saying a prayer of thanksgiving before meals. And it's obviously not very common because whenever my husband and I are out and we are about to eat when we're at a restaurant, we bow our heads and we pray. And he prays out loud. He, we don't just necessarily have the secret prayers so that somebody doesn't know what we're doing. And I imagine there are people who don't like it, but you'd be amazed at how many people come up to us and say, it is so good to see people praying in public again. Mm. Thank you. They thank us for thanking the Lord for our food. <laughs> but that's an example of people are that concerned and I, obviously by the fact that people come up and say it, it gives them a an additional maybe impetus to say, I could do this too. There is a story I'd like to relate, and I don't know if I've related it before on this podcast, but I have other places. My husband once worked at a car dealership decades ago, and they would have a Christmas party for families, but then they would always have a Christmas party prior to that just for the salespeople. And he was at One of these parties and attached to the way they did things at the time is if you had set aside a certain amount of money for your Christmas club, the dealership would match it. And so what you'd set aside had something to do with your sales or whatnot. Anyway, he was looking at getting a couple of thousand dollars. And so he's not one who really liked going to these dinners just for the salesman and such, but he went because there was going to be the reward at the end of getting this money in it right around Christmas time. Anyway, before they handed those out, after they all ate, they went into a room, and then they brought out some strippers, and my husband was very uncomfortable. He got up and left, and he called me on the phone, and that was back in the day of pay phones. Nobody had cell phones, and he called me up, and he said, I'm really sorry. I think I just cost us $2,000, and I went, <laughs> what? what? And he said, I couldn't stay there. I mean, I think this might mean that we lose the bonus. And I just had to laugh. I said, you think I'm upset because you left? No, you honored our marriage by leaving. You, you didn't upset me at all. Who cares if we don't get the money? Well, he hung up the phone, and there were two other men who were standing there saying, thank you so much for getting up and leaving. We were uncomfortable, but until you got up, we didn't feel we could. Long story short... He got the bonus. They didn't withhold any of it from him. And I remember a couple of days later when we were at the family Christmas party. Oh, everybody was like family, Merry Christmas. And I had this sense of how I was the blessed wife in all this because these other women probably had no idea what their husbands had agreed to and how their marriages had been dishonored. So, Taking a stand in the public square might marginalize you, but there will be immediate blessing. And I remember, we still remember that day. We don't remember what we spent that money on, but we remember the two men who thanked my husband for acting on his conviction.
0: That is a great story. Um, I don't recall you having shared it before on this podcast, but I'm very glad that you did because it is a perfect example. Another that comes to mind, some of our listeners may have seen the motion picture. If not, it would be a good one to watch is the film that was out some years ago called Chariots of Fire concerning the, uh, the Christian missionary to China, the Scottish missionary named Eric Little and his refusal to run in the Olympic race because his particular meet was scheduled for the Lord's Day. That was a marginalization of him, but the Lord honored him in that. A great story, you know, whether it's the example that you've given us or something on a bigger scale uh, like that. We have these opportunities to, in the best sense of the term, marginalize ourselves, not in an arrogant way, but in a way of being faithful. Now, we can't control how the people who hate God's law, be they church members or pagans, are going to react. People don't like it when righteousness is upheld, even if it's done in a, a manner of humility, even more if it's done in a manner of humility, they don't like it. But we have tried to talk about in this podcast, the whole issue of just within the framework of a pagan culture, adhering to a different law standard, which means that encompasses the church, the family, the state is going to immediately set you apart, another term, marginalize. But we are called to be about this business so that eventually, by God's grace and through the power of his Holy Spirit, we become less of the standout and more of the status quo, again, in the best sense of that term.
1: You now what comes to mind is Jesus' command to let your light shine among men, so that, not that they will think you're cool, or isn't he great, or isn't he righteous, so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Why those who hate God? want to annihilate any expression of a Christian world and life view, is they know that a little light dispels darkness. You can go in the darkest of dark rooms and put on a little flashlight, a little tiny flashlight, and suddenly it's not dark where you are. Well, the last thing they want are tons of flashlights going off. And I believe that our call is to Turn on our flashlights. Make sure that people see the light. And as God so wills it, there are going to be those people who have been looking for the light. Now they know where to go because you just turned on your flashlight.
0: That is absolutely correct. And we are indeed to let our light so shine among men that it has that very effect. And we know that God's word, according to the Psalms, is a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. As we draw this podcast to a close, I wanted to see if you had any resources or recommendations to our listeners to follow up on this, uh, either audio, books, or anything. Andrea, what, uh, what are your thoughts?
1: Well, I'm always going to recommend books first. That's because I tend to be a reader more than a listener. But if you go ahead and go to the Chalcedon website and look for two books, one is called The Biblical Philosophy of History, which will give you a template with which to view history and know whether or not the history you learned and received is faithful history. And the other one is entitled The Foundations of Social Order. I'll be honest, that's one a little tougher read in as much as it's going through a lot of the elements of the creeds and the councils of the early church. But if you want to understand how Christendom emerged go and tackle that book. Now, since you're going to the Calcedon site to find it, there are also audio lectures that go along with both of those, and I don't remember the exact name, but if you put in history or you put in foundations of social order, you will also see the audio lectures that come up as a result of the search.
0: And in addition to those excellent uh, resources, um, I would add to myself two books The first, I think, is a a very good basic introduction to the whole concept of dominion, the whole idea about what Christians ought to be about doing in terms of moving from a marginalized point to a point of absolute majority and the flourishing of God's law in time, in history, and in this world. It's one of the first books that I read on this subject many years ago. It's called Paradise Restored, A Biblical Theology of Dominion by David Chilton, the late David Chilton. I believe you can find this book free online at Gary North's free book site. You can just simply Google Gary North free books, and I think you can find a PDF copy of this for free. The other book is a very different one, and I mentioned it earlier, the subtitle at least, and I think I referred to this in some of our other podcasts. It's by Kyle Harper, a university professor. The title is From Shame to Sin, The Christian Transformation of Sexual Morality in Late Antiquity. It's published by Harvard University Press, so this is no uh, juvenile-type writing. It is a scholarly book, but easily read, and it chronicles, as I have indicated and in some of the things that I've said during this podcast, how the earliest followers of Jesus in ancient antiquity and moving into the latter part of the ancient world were willing to be marginalized to make this stand, and eventually, the one thing that set them apart from Everyone else that was the most visible was their lack of willingness to participate and support the sexual deviancy that so permeated ancient culture. So that's From Shame to Sin by Kyle Harper.
1: And for those of you who have contacted us or approached us and thanked us for these podcasts, we are very glad that you benefit from them. We do hope you share them. And anyone who has comments, questions, or ideas, feel free to contact us at out of the question podcast at gmail.com.
0: Thank you very much, Andrea, and uh, we will bid farewell to our audience. Until next time. Thanks for listening to Out of the Question. For more information on this and other topics, visit www.kingdomdrivenfamily.com.